0: everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman and you've tuned in to Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly show celebrating New York, celebrating its history, its texture, and its vibe. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows like tonight's, we celebrate an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. In prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as illuminating and interesting as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting relationship with New York. We've looked at the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored bicycles and their history. We've looked at punk and opera and our library systems. We visited the subway. We've talked about public art. We've also talked about our greatest train stations, one of which is here, one of which is no longer here, and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, you can hear each of these shows on podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other services. Tonight, we're doing one of those special shows, and spring is in the air. And people are out and beginning to celebrate more with uh, restrictions uh, of the pandemic being uh, lifted and no longer is necessary. Uh, Maybe we'll even be able to say post-pandemic in the not-too-distant future. So tonight we're going to be focusing on entertainment and specifically nightclubs, one of my favorite topics. Um, Our only guest tonight, because it's such a long topic, we're going to devote the whole show to it, is no stranger to rediscovering New York. He's my friend David Griffin. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast, and he provides great sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. David's the founder and CEO of an amazing company called Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. Yes, he has other real estate brokers who are his clients, as well as me. David has a series called Room at the Top. He co-hosts it with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David writes a tremendous amount. His latest blog is called Every Building on Fifth. It documents every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. That's at the Harlem Armory, by the way. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. David, I always keep saying a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York, but an especially hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York now that we have you for a whole hour. Welcome back. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Well, for the last couple of shows that we've been on, um, we've actually been interviewing other people um, and we haven't asked you about your background, but uh, since some of our listeners uh, uh, are new and they don't know your background, let's talk about uh, your background for a bit. You're from the metropolitan area, but not the city itself, at least not originally.
1: No, I grew up um, um most of my childhood was out on Long Island and then when I was in my early teens we moved up to the Hudson River Valley. Uh I have lived in New York City post college, so I've always been a New York City area resident. And yeah, I know the city uh very well. It's uh, it's been my my stomping ground throughout my five decades, as it were. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you get interested in what you typically write about, which is architectural history and in New York history in particular?
1: Well, my mother is an artist, and so she sort of schooled us all in how to kind of just visually observe our surroundings. I remember she used to make little dioramas for us kids when we would go and visit a new place, like we'd go up to Montreal to see my grandparents. So she'd build a sort of a scale model of the place and let us sort of explore it at that level. And then we were, uh, my siblings and I were the first um, children to be hired by the state of New York for a park. We were uh, costume docents at Old Bethpage Village Restoration out on Long Island. And just sort of having a chance to go out there and wear the, the clothing of the 1850s and sort of stay in and, and play in the old houses and buildings out there it really kind of piqued my interest as to, you know, how American history had developed and how buildings were a great way to kind of read that history. And so that just sort of led overall into an interest in architecture as a as a field.
0: But it went beyond architecture because you also mentioned that you used to demonstrate original toys from, from the age.
1: Yes. My uh, siblings and I would go out and play with things like wooden tops and ride a velocipede and other things of that nature. Uh, it was actually a lot of fun. It was more fun than you'd think <clears throat> kids could have in modern times with antique toys and things of that nature. But we were all sort of interested in the past, I think.
0: Mm. Well, speaking of the past and maybe a little bit of the present, New York has uh, an amazing storied past. Uh, and one thing that that takes us from the past into the present, although not in the last 12 months, but now maybe again, are, are nightclubs and the genre of nightclubs. <sighs> as much as they have been and will again be a mainstay of New York, um, David, the subject's a little bit different from the typical talks that you give and the the things that you write about. What was it that had you branch out into studying nightclubs and their history? Why nightclubs? What's their their interest for you?
1: Well, I think anybody who's spent um, their younger years in New York City has an interest in nightclubs because that's where you go out and meet people, whether it's your friends or people that you want to meet new. Um, I certainly did a a certain amount of clubbing in my post-college years in New York and really enjoyed it. Um, Not for quite a long long time, I haven't, and I don't know that I would do it again if the opportunity presented itself. But I think it's part and parcel of um, a certain kind of social rite of passage in New York City that, you know, you go out. That's where the music is. It's where dancing is. It's where socializing is. And it's been that way for you know over 120 years since the first of what we would consider to be nightclubs came into being in the 1880s and 1890s, um, and then spread with the spread of things such as electricity. Um, and you know, it's it's one of an amplified
0: sound too. So you could
1: sound right, but I think electricity is really the thing that, that created modern nightlife because all of a sudden you could see the streets, you could see the buildings. You could see signs, et cetera, and so forth. And you could light interiors in a very new and brilliant way. And so that opened up the doors for, you know, night being a different type of time to entertain or to seek entertainment. Hmm. Whereas uh, prior to the 1880s period, you know, the when the sun went down, the city was dark. That was
0: that was the end of that. So. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there was a time when the sun went down, you didn't even have a uh, nighttime baseball. And there was a time when there was no baseball. You know, I was, um, things seem timeless. Sometimes I was reading recently about uh, um, some of the history in New Orleans and about uh, one of the first uh, gay bars on Bourbon Street. And mm-hmm. uh, it was opened in 1946, I think, and it closed uh, in, uh, in in the 60s. And if you've been on Bourbon Street, you just think, well, it's been that way for time immemorial. But actually, um, back in the 40s and the 50s, it was a pretty sleepy part of New Orleans. And uh, now it makes sense that uh, what, what gave rise to it uh, was the fact that you could have air conditioning and also amplified sound and uh, pre recorded sound. Um, David, is there something about the genre of New York, of the New York nightclub that made clubs in New York distinct compared with clubs in other American cities?
1: Uh, I'd say there were three things that that kind of led to the rise of the New York nightclub being something of an iconic vessel for this type of experience. One is the fact that New York was such a center for African-American music. You had the largest urban African-American population in North America in the, the district of Harlem. And a lot of the great clubs were located in Harlem specifically to showcase that sound and those musicians and those performers. Uh, but you had things like jazz, you had blues, you had all these, you had swing, you had big bands because you had the hotel ballrooms. So you could kind of fill those with people. Uh, there were just a, an enormous amount of venues that were seeking different types of music. And I think New York became a sort of a center along with Chicago to a certain extent, to a certain extent, other cities up and down the Mississippi. But none of them had quite the audience factor that New York City did. So it really became a place. For these performers to play, there is some thought that the phrase the Big Apple was, in fact, popularized uh, by jazz musicians who would say, well, I'm going to go play the Big Apple, meaning that they finally got a booking in New York and they could play their music in front of what was sure to be a large and rather diverse audience. Uh, The other thing is that diversity. New York City has always been a multicultural center right from the beginning, Um, Even from the Dutch colonial period, it was surprising how many different languages and how many different races were living in the city during the time of Dutch colonial uh, period. And so you have Europeans coming in, you have Latin Americans coming in, you have all these other people who are visiting the city or immigrating to the city. uh, And you have them, you know, uh, from people who really are the immigrants who arrive with, you know, whatever they have in their pockets to people who are touring through who are, you know, the ultra-rich, the aristocracy, et cetera, and so forth. So you have a very diverse audience for this, and people expect something new. And then the third thing was simply the fact that New York was so visible as a kind of an icon of new types of architecture and technology. I mean, think about Times Square. That's really a kind of a unique place in the United States. There are other places around the world that are somewhat like it, like Piccadilly in London or the Ginza District in Tokyo, although that's more known as a very famous shopping zone. Uh, Times Square was really just this confluence of media technology, spectacle light and nightlife you had nightclubs that were perched on top of those buildings you had the theaters directly adjacent you had bars you had restaurants you had you know the entire spirit of the tenderloin as it was understood from south 42nd street all the way down to 23rd that was the original zone and um, you know the steakhouses that were there uh, you know etc and so forth And it went through various periods of time. Obviously, in the 70s, it was very seedy. Um, Nowadays, it's very sort of corporate and very sleek and very addicted to special effects. But it is this kind of zone of the spectacular. And I think because of that, nightclubs keyed into that. They borrowed from its technology. Uh, There's not a single one of these clubs we're about to discuss that didn't have a neon sign outside, for example. Mm. None of them. They all had neon signs. That was what a nightclub meant in New York. And I think a certain type of... Up to the minute, very, very, you know, ultra chic uh, sort of modern uh, interior was something that was associated with New York in a way that a place like London just, you know, they weren't they weren't selling that that wasn't that wasn't what people went to London to experience. Mm. So, yeah, I think that that became kind of a hallmark of nightclubs around the world, actually.
0: Well, you mentioned the diversity of New York and um, the African-American community and population that was here in the city from the time of the Great Migration. Let's start by speaking about one of the most famous clubs in New York history. And, and actually, which started, which opened almost 100 years ago, if you can believe it. And that's the Cotton Club, which most people have heard of. Or most people should have heard of the Cotton Club uh, if they if they hadn't heard of the Cotton Club. What are the origins of the Cotton Club? Well, the Cotton Club is not
1: the oldest nightclub in New York City by a long shot. We'd have to go back to the 19th century to really investigate, you know, the beginnings of the nightclub as a phenomenon. But the Cotton Club is certainly one of the first that was really known around the world. Uh, It was founded in 1923. It ran from 1923 to 1940. It did have two locations. The most famous location was on 142nd Street, and Lenox Avenue up in Harlem. Uh, The second location was briefly at Midtown in the theater district for about two or three years. Uh, The club operated during the United States era of prohibition. And also, unfortunately, the Jim Crow era of racial segregation. So although this was a great place to go and hear the black performers of the day, uh, a huge variety of them, it was initially a place where those people could not bring their friends and guests Um, Black people were not allowed to patronize the Cotton Club. Uh, So, you know, that was a real sort of bitter irony that that stuck in a lot of people's throats for quite a while. Um, The venue did go on to feature a lot of the most popular uh, African-American entertainers of the era. Uh, We're talking about people like Duke Ellington, um, Chuck Webb, Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, Fats Waller. Uh, Vocalists at the Cotton Club included Ethel Waters, people like Cab Calloway. Bessie Smith, Avon Long, uh, the Dandridge sisters, Dorothy Dandridge in particular. There's a series of famous photographs of her singing at the Cotton Club. And the Dandridges really, I think, got their start there. Um, uh, There were dancers there. The the great Nicholas Brothers were one of the all-time sort of great uh, tap dancing sensations of that period. Uh, They actually appear in several films set in New York nightclubs. And if you Google them on YouTube... Their their routines are just absolutely phenomenal, and they were uh, regular appear. They made regular appearances at the Cotton
0: Club. When did the barrier of racial segregation uh, go away at the Cotton Club, David? When could African American people uh, uh, be customers there?
1: There was increasing protest against this racist bias against patrons. Uh, You know, people were pointing out. You know, you're making your living off of the people who are actually there to provide the talent there's no reason why anybody would go to this place would work for them and you're not allowing them their own people to come in and see them so in 1935 they did decide to just get rid of the color barrier and they put on a huge ball and a spectacle for it uh, and opened up the club to black patrons and it continued on as a great success um you know uh for the few years that it was still open in that location
0: Uh, And the original location was at Lenox Avenue, like 142nd, 143rd Street, right, Uh, I think? Yes. 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 Right between the block of 142nd,
1: 143rd, it filled the entire block, and it was on the second floor of a large commercial building. So you'd see the neon sign, Cotton Club. The ballroom is actually upstairs, and there are a host of little stores and shops on the main
0: floor. Mm -hmm. Although the first original closed and they moved it and the first subsequent Cotton Club opened up, there is a Cotton Club on West 125th Street now. Yes. Uh, I don't know that it's uh, uh, is much affiliated with the people who started the first or with the organization.
1: Uh, I uh, think it really is just that they license the name and they do, um, they do jazz brunches and things of that nature. It does seem um, popular, but I have looked into it and there's no direct connection between that and the original Cotton Club, unfortunately. Um,
0: well, at least we have the name. Uh, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our illuminating conversation with David McGriffin of Landmark Browning about nightclubs in New York, uh, mostly past, but maybe a little bit present. We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC
3: at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting
1: 24 hours a day.
0: Rediscovering New York and our episode about nightclubs in New York. My guest for the entire show is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is also the special consultant for the program. Uh, David, welcome back to the show. Um, We talked about the Cotton Club. I think that was a good way to start off nightclubs in New York. It was so iconic and also ultimately broke down racial barriers in the city's entertainment industry. A very different kind of club was the Stork Club, and that was Midtown. It didn't have the Uptown set, did it?
1: No, it was definitely a Midtown location, and uh, Upper East Side was as far up as it went. Uh, This uh, was a club that existed from 1929 to 1965, and it was, uh, for a time, one of the most prestigious clubs in New York City, uh, and in fact, the world. Uh, It was sort of an international symbol of what was called Café Society which was a sort of mixture of the um, the upper crust with artistic and cultural types. And uh, interestingly enough, it was um, a place where movie stars, celebrities, showgirls, etc., all mixed in the VIP rooms and suites of the club. It was more of a supper club, meaning that people could order dinner there. Uh, There were live performers, there were shows, there was dancing. But it was mostly known for its kind of conviviality and conversation a uh, place where people went to sort of meet and
0: see and be seen. When was it opened? 1929. 1929. It was opened by Sherman Billingsley. Um, was he who who was a bootlegger? Yes. <laughs> too, yes. Some people were bootleggers. Right. Uh, actually, I learned some time ago that uh, actually two of my great-grandmothers uh, provided, uh booze in the 20s. Um, not uh, embarrassed about that at all. A lot of people did. Uh, was uh, Billingsley still... Um, in the bootlegging business when he opened the, uh, uh, the store I,
1: I can only say that um, Bill, Billingsley was not the sort of person that one would normally associate with cafe society. It's, a, it's always been a little bit sort of ironic to find out more about the people who actually own these places. And in this case, he was pretty much, you know, hardened criminal du jour, Um, I don't know if he was still bootlegging personally when he opened up the club, but I do know that the place was raided by the prohibition in 1931 and that they actually had to move. uh, They moved addresses after that. They moved to a very famous building on East 51st Street. Well, that Um, would have outsmarted
0: the cops, definitely, to move the place with the same name to a different location.
1: (laughs) But Billingsley was kidnapped at one point and held for ransom by a man named Mad Dog Call, who was a rival of his mobster partners. And after that, he negotiated to become the sole owner of the stork club, and I think sort of divorced himself from his criminal ties. I guess um, one time handcuffed to a chair was enough for him. and that was the end of that.
0: Hmm. How did Billingsley come up with the name, of the Stork Club? Did it have anything to do with uh, uh, the the uh, uh, old myth about the stork delivering babies? Uh, the origin of the club is uh,
1: unknown, actually. Billingsley once said, please don't continue to ask me how or why I picked the name, because I just don't remember. So... Whatever the the idea was, it has been lost time. The stork itself was incorporated into the club's logo and appeared on the famous ashtrays marked Stork Club, which uh, were anchored at every table in the entire place. And it's how we know a lot of the times where people were uh, since the rest of the decor was elegant, but not particularly eye-catching.
0: Well, that's one uh, uh, closing, uh, going at a business auction I would have loved to have attended if I had the chance. Um mm-hmm. There was a famous broadcaster who broadcasted from the store club.
1: Yes, um, that was Walter Winshell. And he was a famous gossip columnist. Uh, He was sort of one of the people who set the tone for celebrity reportage. He was sort of like the head of Hopper of the East Coast. And he broadcast his radio program from Table 50 at the Cotton Club uh, and sort of had a coterie of people who would surround him like that. It was sort of the the Algonquin uh round table for kissing up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and also drinking. Well, you could drink at the Algonquin round table, uh, even though uh the famous round table uh, uh round table mostly during prohibition, but that probably didn't stop most of them. Certainly not Dorothy Dorothy Parker. Who were some of the famous people that one would see at the store club? Uh, It
1: really ran the full gamut. Uh, Among its guests were President Kennedy and his wife, Jacqueline. Uh, the roosevelt's families the duke and duchess of windsor uh this is the place where the news of grace kelly's engagement to prince rainier of monaco was broken while the couple was actually visiting the store club um evelyn walsh mclean a person who uh, that, that's not a very familiar name but she was the socialite who was the owner in new york city of the hope diamond and she once actually lost the diamond under a table while she was visiting the club. So that must've been a really frantic search. Uh, Ernest Hemingway was able to cash a $100,000 check at the club, which he had just received for the film lights to, uh, for whom the bell tolls. He cashed it at the store club to settle his mile long drinking bill, which he had put off and put off and put off and put off for countless months. Um, So yeah, it was a a very uh, broad range of celebrity
0: guests. And there's some interesting organized labor history that happened at the store club.
1: Yeah, the store club was pretty much done in by the fact that the owner uh, was unwilling to allow the workers to organize. Uh, In the 1940s, the members of the store club, the workers, desired to be represented by a union. Um, By 1957, the employees of all similar New York venues were union members. Billingsley was adamant that he would not allow this to happen. That led to union supporters picketing in front of the club for many years. This became an embarrassment. Um, All of a sudden, people who were more sort of left-leaning didn't want to see be seen as supporting a place like this. And the people who didn't care still didn't want to have to go through a mass of picketers going in and out. And the club really lost its popularity because Billingsley was so pig headed about
0: the unions. Mm. So the picketing actually and led to its demise to led to a closing.
1: To a certain degree Mm -hmm. it did. Um many of the guests simply stopped visiting and Mm. You know, Billingsley had agreed to let them unionize. I don't see that it would have hurt him in any way, and possibly the store club might still be with us. Uh, The building itself on 53rd Street was torn down after the store club closed. And it is now the site of a place that I think a lot of us do enjoy and possibly enjoy more than we would the store club. Uh, Paley Park, which is one of the great pocket parks in the world, and really sort of initiated a a sort of a wave of small-scale urban relief spaces, both in this country and globally.
0: But can can you get martinis there? (laughs) No. No, okay. I don't
1: don't suggest trying to drink one outside either. Well, you can
0: maybe bring your own, um, especially this one in New Orleans. Uh, By the way, there's a really interesting film that's not well-known. It's called The Wrong Man. It's with Henry Fonda. And it partly takes place at the store club. He is wrongly accused of a crime. It's a little film noirish. It's very realistic uh, in terms of, of things that he and his family go through. And uh, he is a band player at the store club. That's his job. I think Barbara Hutton is in that film, isn't she? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. That's the singer. Yeah, I think she is. There's a, yeah. a
1: great film poster for that film that, that features her, I think.
0: Uh, um. Let's move to another Midtown Club, one that was immortalized in a hit song from the 1970s. And if you're old enough, you will, would have heard it on the radio. Uh, the Copacabana. It opened later than the Cotton Club and the Store Club, didn't it?
1: Yes. 1944. Uh, well, actually, mm-hmm. let's see. 1940, sorry. 10 60th Street, a very glamorous location for people who are familiar with that area of the city. Um, and Monte Proser and Frank Costello, who was a mob boss, got together and they partnered to open up the topic Cabana, um, and they opened up a place that was uh, really seen as very chic, very racy, a little bit less staid, less literary than the Stork Club, perhaps a little bit less aristocratic but more fun. The Copacabana was based, of course, on Brazilian decor. They had a Latin American-themed orchestra. and uh, The menu, however, featured Chinese food. I think Brazilian food was just simply a little bit too outre for the tastes of New Yorkers and their guests back in the day. Uh, the club was also very well known for its famous chorus line. Um, it was a segregated club, as the Cotton Club was. They had a very strict policy about that. And then Harry Belafonte... Um, who was a member then of the U.S. Navy, was denied entry with a date. Uh, There was a huge outcry about that, and Podell was persuaded to change his policy. Belafonte actually returned to the Copacabana in the 1950s and became a headliner at the club, playing there for um, quite a while. Sammy Davis Jr. was another featured player. He shattered attendance records with his run in May of 1964. Sam Cooke, The Supremes. Um their recordings there actually resulted in Motown records booking them, The Temptations, Martha and the Vandells, Marvin Gaye, all to perform at the Copa uh, wow. in that period. So it was a, an intense period in the post-war period for African-American music and for the Motown sound, as well as what was left of the, the ballroom circuit.
0: There was a notorious event that took place there in the late 1950s involving some pretty famous New York Yankees.
1: Yes, uh, this was another un- unfortunate racial episode. Uh, the evening of May 16th, 1957, Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Hank Barra, Yogi Berra, Johnny Nux, and Billy Martin, along with all of their wives, arrived at the nightclub to celebrate Martin's birthday. Sammy Davis Jr. was there headlining as the performer. Now, during the performance, uh, a group of drunks at a table just next to the ball players started to interfere with Sammy's act and started hurling racial slurs at him. This really got the Yankees mad, especially Martin. His teammate was Elston Howard. And Elston Howard is a very notable figure in baseball history. He was the first black player to join the Yankees. Um, All of a sudden, there was this huge brawl that happened. Um, One of the racist guys got his jaw broken. (laughs) ha, ha ha. Um, There were lawsuits about it, etc. and so forth. But, you know, most of them were thrown out of court. Um, However, Martin himself was later traded from the Yankees to the Kansas City Athletics, uh, with this incident of his behavior in public
0: being cited as a main cause. Uh, during the 1970s, the Copa changed. How so? What what changed about it? Well, if you're familiar with the
1: song by Barry Manilow, it had become a disco by that point. Mm-hmm. So a uh, very different scene, of course. And I think that the Copa was uh, just unable really to kind of hold on to its allure and glamour of the immediate mm-hmm. post-war period. Uh, the Barry Manilow song "Copa Cabana." became a hit during the 70s, just as the club itself, I think, was sort of winding down in the public sphere. Uh, There was a move to a space on West 57th Street that I remember visiting. Um, I remember that, too. I actually went with some college
0: friends in the early 80s as before it closed.
1: It it had very little to do with the aesthetics and the the kind of feel of the original Copacabana.
0: All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our fascinating conversation with David Griffin about nightclubs in New York, mostly past, but maybe present. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're
3: listening to Talk Radio NYC Uplift, Educate, Empower.
0: Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, Christopher Pappas, Mortgage Specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. Support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles in all three are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, if you'd like to get on a mailing list, please email me. Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to the second half of our show, um, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not in the famed nightclubs of New York, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our guest today is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is not only an architectural specialist and aficionado, he's also the special consultant for the program, and it's always great to have David with us. Um, David, why don't you tell our listeners uh, a bit about what you do at Landmark Branding? Well, Jeff, I uh,
1: create marketing support for the owners, developers, and realtors of historic and architecturally distinguished buildings. Um, I do everything from creating listings to website copy, uh, creating VIP tours and events around new buildings and new builds, and uh, write about architectural and engineering renovation, restoration trends for mm, magazines and newspapers such as Real Estate Weekly. Uh, brownstoner metropolis and dwell Uh, you already mentioned my blog every building on fifth it is a capsule history of every single building on fifth avenue from the washington square arch up to the amazing um, art deco harlem armory which is uh, one of the great sort of unknown art deco masterpieces in new york city uh, and I am currently working on a book proposal on the penthouse as a American architectural type, uh, along with several other articles and projects in the, uh, in the wings. I'm currently working on a series of talks for the New York Adventure Club on global architecture, and they're a wonderful organization. If you'd like to check them out, they have all sorts of people where they're speaking on architectural historical topics. Uh, and, uh, you may have mentioned the, uh, Group of tours that I co-host with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. Uh, Room at the Top, which we're hoping to get going post-pandemic. Visits to historic skyscrapers throughout New York City. um, And talks about how art and architecture are economic engineers for the city. And how can people get in touch with you, David? Uh, My website is landmarkbranding.com. And my email, which is linked at the website, is dgriffin.com. D-G-R-I-F-F-I-N at landmarkbranding.com and I'm happy to answer any
0: questions or field any inquiries. Great. One nightclub that many people have never heard of is the Peppermint Lounge. Uh, Do you want to talk about the Peppermint Lounge and a famous dance that got invented there that I think almost everyone will have heard of?
1: More than anything, Jeff. (laughs) Uh, the peppermint lounge is interesting historically because it was one of the very first places that we would now consider a discotheque in other words it had the sound equipment for people to play records that would be the things that people dance to as opposed to live performers which isn't to say the peppermint lounge did not have live performers they did they had several very notable ones but they were a record playing place primarily and they were associated with a new form of dance called the twist which makes the name of the nightclub make sense because it's the peppermint twist of course so uh the peppermint lounge was decorated in a very sort of De class a way, if you just stuck your head and you think, oh, it's an ice cream parlor that's fallen upon very hard times. It, it didn't quite have the chic of the other clubs we're talking about. It wasn't about that type of experience. It was geared towards a much younger crowd. It was geared towards what we now would call the teeny boppers. And uh, it only had a very small capacity, only 178 people, which for a nightclub is minuscule. Uh, It was also one of the clubs that was geared more or less openly during this time period towards a gay clientele, although I think people who became aware of it through its association with the twist were unaware of that as well. Um, The twist craze hits around 1960, 1961, and all of a sudden celebrities are swarming into this place. Audrey Hepburn, Truman Capote, Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, Noel Coward, Frank Sinatra, Norman Mailer, Annette Funicello, even Greta Garbo showed up to learn how to dance the twist one night. Mm -hmm. Um, Joey D and the Starlighters were the house band. Uh, Jacqueline Kennedy herself was such an enthusiast that she arranged for a temporary quote-unquote peppermint lounge to be mounted in the White House for one of her gala evenings so that people could learn to dance the twist at the White House in surroundings that suggested the peppermint lounge. Um, A sister club was opened in Miami Beach briefly. Um, And Sam Cooke's Twisting the Night Away, which I love. It's a great song. Uh, Doesn't mention the club by name, but is specifically about the scene at the Peppermint Lounge. And there are a couple very coded lyrics in there. A place somewhere up in New York, New York Way, where the people are so gay. He means that literally. There's also that great line about the older queen. I've often wondered if he meant actually a drag queen in the context of the Peppermint Lounge and not just a, a sort of a throwaway remark about a rather grand lady. So uh, the Beatles were filmed visiting the club during their first U.S. visit in 1964. They just sort of made an impromptu stop there. And artists who performed there included the Beach Boys, the Ronettes, who made their professional debut, debut there in 1961. Ronnie Spector was sort of the muse of the Peppermint Lounge. The Crystals, the Isley Brothers, Chubby Checker, the Younger Brothers, Liza Minnelli, and the Four Seasons. So a pretty good run for a shabby little disco
0: on a side street in Midtown, I'd say. Let's talk about cafe society. What was cafe society and what differentiated it?
1: Well, cafe societies as we've mentioned, was a term that meant where the um, aristocracy and the sort of Hollywood glitterati met together. And uh, that was something that pri- prior decades had been seen as something You know, sort of of the demi-monde, it wasn't entirely respectable. If you were nobility, you didn't hang out with a bunch of actors and actresses because, you know, who knew where they had been, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, Café Society was created by a man named H.R. Josephson, and it was created specifically to showcase African-American talent, much like the Cotton Club. Unlike the Cotton Club, this was a fully integrated club right from the start. And they opened up and were very proud of the fact that they would give the exact same service to both white and Black guests. It didn't matter what the color of your skin was or where you came from. As long as you dressed well and you were there to listen to the music, they had no problem with you and they made sure that you felt comfortable there. Um, Josephson actually trademarked the name Cafe Society and he did so as a sort of little finger in the eye to all those sort of um, toffs at Upper Crusties who were at the Stork Club, which is the place he absolutely hated. He advertised the club (laughs) as the wrong place for the right people and opened up a second branch on 58th Street between Lexington and Park Avenue in 1940. So uh, there was no color bar there. However, the club featured many of the greatest Black musicians of the day. Um, And what was really kind of unique about Cafe Society is that its content was often political in nature. Billie Holiday first sang Strange Fruit There that was the first time that she sang that song in public. She did so at Josephson's assistance, and she closed the set with the song, leaving the stage without taking any encores, so that the audience would be left to kind of decipher the lyrics and think about the meaning of this song, which is, of course, about violence against Black people in the American South and elsewhere. Um, relying on the musical judgment of John Hammond, who was the club's unofficial music director, Josephson helped launch the careers of people like Ruth Brown, Lena Horne, dancer Pearl Primus, Hazel Scott, Albert Ammons, Big Joe Turner, Sarah Vaughan, and popularized gospel groups as well, such as the Dixie Hummingbirds and the Golden Gate Quartet, among white, black, and upper-class audiences. So many of these acts had been first presented at Hammond's Carnegie Hall concerts, which were called from Spirituals to Swing and 1938 and again in 1939, there was a series of those concerts. So the Carnegie Hall content came downtown and played again at Cafe Society.
0: Mm. Before we take a break, let's talk briefly about a club with a fun name, El Morocco. Yes, a very fun name, and I guess a fun place. John Perona,
1: an Italian immigrant, opened it as a speakeasy on East 54th Street, south side of 54th Street, in the middle of the block between Lexington and 3rd Avenue where the city group uh, tower now stands the Citibank building ah. um, that has replaced where El morocco was uh, after prohibition was repealed this became one of the most popular establishments in new york uh, again we had a, a mix of fashionable society politicians entertainers uh, part of what really made, made the club unique was the fact that they had a house photographer and this was a new thing this was the beginning of the age of the paparazzi And, you know, people didn't photograph any better back then than they did now. So it was nice when you realized that the club had an actual professional photographer who would take your pictures and then disseminate them. So you had someone who kind of had a a little bit more control over the situation. Um, The interior was very famous for having uh, zebra stripes on all the banquets and a lot of the furniture was covered with zebra stripes. And they were blue and silver so it was a very distinctive scheme that set off a lot of the fashions of the period. That turned up as black and white on the photographs. Mm. The thing was, if you popped a photograph in El Morocco, everyone knew it was El Morocco because you'd see those zebra mm. stripes. So it was a real way to brand the club as well as the people who were in it. And people liked that. They liked the feeling of being in a controlled environment where all of a sudden publicity was becoming part of the uh, part of the key of going out was to build that.
0: Mm. All right. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about New York nightclubs with David Griffin. We'll be back in a moment.
3: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
1: Are you a small business
0: trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws And you're back to Rediscovering New York on our episode about nightclubs. David, I can't believe that almost an hour has gone by. And there are still some great clubs that we have to talk about. The famous, the infamous Studio 54. Tell us about it. Uh, Former disco nightclub. uh, Currently a
1: Broadway theater, actually, on, of course, 254 West 54th Street. So there was a double 54 uh, kind of engaged there. Uh, it opened in 1927 as the uh, Gallo Opera House, actually, and operated as an entertainment venue under various names until 1942, and that's when CBS uh, began using it as a radio and television studio dubbed Studio 52. So uh, Studio 52 became Studio 54, but it was always called a studio, and that's where the uh, ultimately where the name of the club was derived. Um, in 1977, Steve Rubel and Ian Schrager, uh, two of the great near duels of nightlife culture, transformed the theater into a nightclub called Studio 54. Uh, they had Jack Dishy as a financial backer, and they brought in designers to create a dance floor environment and create movable theatrical sets and lights using the existing TV lighting circuits and fly systems. So they had amazing technology of built into this space when they took it over they knew that they could do something really spectacular with it and they did so the new interiors allowed for a very dynamic and constantly changing environment with a lot of sort of special effects uh the famous moon with the coke spoon for example (laughs) um certain displays of uh neon-like lighting that suggested Times square the theater district outside uh and the crowd could be lit brightly for the first time even as they were dancing it was something that you could see and photograph and film. So it was a place that had a very cinematic quality to it. Um, uh, it was kind of interesting because Rubel would actually spend most of the nights outside the club kind of helping the bouncers handpick the crowd who were able to get in. And so the, the club has been kind of famous in a way for being inclusive in some sense in that the people that were let in were a very broad spectrum socially and you know racially ethnically, wherever they were all of those there was no in other words there was no color barrier here but what there was was a barrier about being cool mm. if you Were cool enough for him you didn't get in if you were cool you got in but cool who defined that well rubel did and the doorman did but under Rubell's really, really, really gimlet eye. And Rubell, I think, had a very, very specific idea of the type of crowd he wanted to literally see on his dance floor. He knew what those people should look like. And he, I hate using the term curated in this sense, but if anybody curated a group of people, it was Rubell. A lot of people mm-hmm. loved him. A lot of people hated him, but he did create something that really felt like no other place, I think, in New York before or since.
0: I'm sure there were mixed emotions from people when he uh, uh, he and Ian Schrager were uh, um, found guilty of tax evasion and uh, hauled off to federal prison for a while. Yes. But, um, um, speaking of of having a, co- a, a come to Jesus or a come to, uh, a to Buddha moment, uh, let's talk about a club with a religious theme. That's the Limelight.
1: Yes. Limelight is, of course, the famous club that actually was uh, – Active uh, in my period as well. And in mine. <laughs> and in yours. And that opened in November of 1983. So it's it's a little sort of post-disco. It becomes kind of a, a new thing. We're talking about clubs that are moving like Palladium, for example, uh, Danseteria, CBGBs, et cetera, and so forth. These are all sort of post-disco clubs They move into things like punk. They move into things like electronica. They move into modern forms of dance music. Madonna comes out of this period. People like Boy George and the Culture Club. Limelight um, opens, as I said, in nineteen eighty-three. And the site was a Gothic Revival brownstone church built in 1844-45, designed by the architect Richard Upjohn, who was a great Gothic architect in New York City. He designed Trinity Church at the foot of um, Wall Street and Broadway. So this is a smaller, much smaller building. It's less grand, but it's still very beautiful. And uh, the interior was sort of partially preserved with stained glass windows and the galleries still intact. Um, It became one of the most infamous sort of rock clubs in New York City and uh, really earned the media's attention in the 90s when club kid and party promoter Michael Allig was arrested and then later convicted for the killing and dismemberment of Angel Melendez, who was a fellow member of the club kids, people who dressed up in these kind of extravagant outfits to go out and party. Um, uh, There was a lot of, you know, mental and moral baggage that went along with this, mm. shall we say? And criminal baggage, <laughs> apparently, too. Criminal baggage. Uh, the 2003 uh, movie Party Monster, which stars Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green, is based on that event. I actually recommend that movie. It's, it's better than you'd think anything with Macaulay Culkin in it could be, <laughs> particularly with him playing Michael Alec, of all people. But Seth Green is absolutely amazing in that movie, and it does capture something of the the signature aesthetic that kind of rolled along with Limelight. Mm.
0: Well, and I have to say, actually, uh, they, they sort of changed a little. I, I held a party in the limelight when I had a, uh, an advertising business uh, uh, that published LGBT travel guides. And uh, uh, they said, hey, come have a party and invite people that you know. So we did. And we had our own little roped off area in the back. Uh, it was, was uh, it? quite exciting. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. Um, David, in the couple minutes we have left, let's go a little bit further downtown and talk to a space that really was extraordinary inside. And that was the Palladium.
1: Yes. The Palladium was one of probably the most artistic uh, nightclubs in New York City. It was originally called the Academy of Music and had been built as a movie theater and concert hall. Um, This was located on the south side of East 14th Street, right off of Union Square. And it was designed by Thomas W. Lamb, the original building in 1927. And Thomas W. Lamb was a great theater architect. He designed many of the, the great sort of picture palaces in the entire country. He designed theaters in New York and Chicago, San Francisco, wherever a major city was, it was generally a theater by Thomas Lamb at some point. Um, during the 1960s, it was a rock concert venue, and then it was with Christian Palladium in September 18, 1976. Uh, they used to do radio broadcasts from there. And then finally, it was converted into a nightclub by the, our old pals from Studio 54, Steve Rubell and Ann Schrager. They hired a DJ from Danceateria, one of the other famous kind of new electronica and new dance music clubs. And they opened it up as a Euro and house music oriented club. The architect in charge of the renovation was Arata isasaki And Esasaki um, created the uh, famous Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. He's a very distinguished architect. And there was a huge mural um, by the artist um, Keith Herring, actually a favorite of mine. Yes. Lost to us, unfortunately, through AIDS in the early 1990s. Uh, But one of his large monumental pieces decorated uh, the great dance room there. And the the place has been pulled down. It's been entirely demolished. And there's now student housing there for New York University.
5: Mm.
0: Well, David, this has been fascinating. There are a couple of other clubs we could have talked about, but we didn't have the time. I mean, there's so much you can talk about about New York history, especially nightclubs. Well, thank you so much for being, uh, as always, such a fabulous guest on Rediscovering New York. Our guest today, our only guest, has been the great David Griffin. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. You can reach him at www.landmarkbranding.com. Uh, if you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown, Harris, Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sturrier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant for the series was our guest tonight, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.
3: Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
2: Hey everybody, it's Tommy D., the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host the program, Philanthropy Game Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi,
3: I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military, and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock. Every Thursday evening, the mind behind leadership here on TalkRadio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the
4: new podcast, Wise Content Makes Wealth. It airs on TalkRadio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2 They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on TalkRadio.nyc.
3: Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on TalkRadio.nyc with very reasonable rates. Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, TalkRadio.nyc.